This edition of the Bio Report is brought to you by the California Technology Council, providing discounts on products and services essential to every startup. For more information, visit californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. For a number of diseases that require chronic administration of a substance naturally produced by the body, patients have had to rely on regular injections or infusions. Cernova is working to free patients from these types of regimes with its combination device and cell therapy that implants a pouch that contains living cells that produce the missing hormone, factor, or other substance. We spoke to Phil Talikas, CEO of Cernova, about its technology the challenges involved in such an approach, and the company's initial focus on diabetes and hemophilia. Phil, thanks for joining us. Thank you. We're going to talk about Cernova. It's technology for an implantable device that houses therapeutic cells and the challenges and benefits of this approach. Let's start with why this approach is desirable. You're working on this for diabetes and hemophilia, but what's the benefit of of using an implantable device like this? So our particular implantable device is uh, quite novel and different than any of the other devices out there. When we developed our device, we looked at the biology of cells to get a good understanding of what requirements they have. And typically cells require a matrix to be able to live in. They require other types of cells to be around to communicate with. Um, they require, and they require most importantly, a supply of blood or being very close to the vasculature system. So what we did with our device is, um, there are two parts of the, of the device technology. One is the creation of the ideal environment for therapeutic cells. And so we divide, we designed our device um, as more as a scaffold with multiple chambers in it that is scalable. And the idea is that when we put the device in the body, whether it goes neomental space or subcutaneous space or wherever it goes, the device automatically will fill in naturally with tissue around <clears throat> these removable plugs. And what happens is that tissue becomes highly vascularized. And what we do is we insert the therapeutic cells into the device chambers, um, and those cells then will be surrounded by tissue matrix. And then what will happen is that the microvessels will feed into the cells themselves. And so that creates the ideal tissue environment. And we've proven that we have this ideal tissue environment in multiple small animal studies, large animal studies, and also in a human clinical trial. The second part of the technology is to ask the question, how do you protect the cells from the immune system? And the approach that, that we're taking is that we are 
we're able to do two things. One is we can use um, anti-rejection drugs that are that are commonly used to protect organs from uh, rejection. But we also, in uh, the work that we're developing, we're working on developing microcapsules that we place the cells into that can allow, uh, you know, the nutrients to move in and out of the uh, microcapsules to the cells, and then also allow the insulin and other products to be able to leave the cells. But at the same time, those microcapsules do not allow uh, the immune system cells to be able to enter. And we've shown that we, when we put cells with that, are, that have microcapsules into our device chambers, we've actually shown that the microvessels, that they sit in a tissue environment, and that the microvessels can come right up to the outside of those uh, capsules, and that the cells survive and they function really well. So, so what we've done is separated um, the local immune protection technology from the device technology, which actually creates the environment for the cells, different than other than other groups. Walk me through the the mechanics of this. Help me visualize what what the pouch is. Uh, where is it implanted? What's it made out of? How big is it? How yeah. does it work? Okay, great. So it it can be implanted anywhere in the body. We've done multiple studies that shows um, that wherever it's implanted, either under the skin or in the mental tissue, that it forms this highly vascularized uh, tissue environment. Um, the device is scalable, meaning that we can use it for multiple diseases. Um, and it, the largest one is about the size, uh, a little bit smaller than a business card. And that uh, device itself holds enough islets for an entire pancreas. So um, the pancreas holds several uh, tablespoons of islets, and those islets can be placed into a single device. Um, and that, you know, and typically for our clinical study that we're uh, that we've been working on now, we place the device um, in the subcutaneous tissue, and that's uh, we get significant uh, blood vessel development into the device from from that perspective. Uh, your lead indication is diabetes. C can you walk? us through the mechanism of the disease, how it's treated today, and, and the market opportunity? And are you looking at this for both type 1 and type 2 diabetes? Yeah, that's a great question. So the way it works is um, we're focusing on type 1 diabetes now, uh, but we're also very interested in those type 2 patients who have then moved on to uh, start taking insulin injections, okay? So uh, the market for the type one diabetes alone, which we usually call insulin dependent, is several million patients in North America. And then when you expand that to the potential type 2, which we consider about 30% of type 2 patients will move on to end up taking insulin injections, that brings the, uh, the number of patients up to about 45 to 50 million people in our patented, in the countries for which we have patents. Um, the so the, the second question that that you had was well, uh, from from a mechanistic point of view, how, how oh, does the disease right. work? This is, I mean, type one diabetes is essentially an autoimmune disease, is it not? Yeah. So type one uh, diabetes is more of an autoimmune disease, and the for whatever reason, the islets in the pancreas are attacked at some point and they are killed. And, so and these are the doing, insulin producing cells. And those are the insulin producing cells. That's correct. And so what? 
what we're doing is um, looking at replacing those in our device and then micro-encapsulating them and protecting them from the immune environment is what the, what the approach is that we're taking. You, you've touched on, touched on some of the challenges, but among the challenges of this approach is you need to be able to keep the cells alive and, and get them the needed nutrients they need to survive. You need to protect them from being killed by the patient's immune system, and, and you need them to be able to release and deliver their therapeutic benefit and, and do that in the right dose. How does all of this work within your system? Yeah, so great question. So one of the things that is really um, important about our system is that we have done testing in uh, small animal studies, and we've also been able to use the clinical product and test uh, that product in large animals. And then we have also done some work in uh, initial work in patients. And so um, basically what we what we're finding there is that islets themselves, it, it's not a problem with dosing once you get up to a certain number of islets. Um, in the typical dose that is used uh, for the Edmonton protocol, which is which is where they put islets in the portal vein, is, is called 10,000 islet equivalents per kilo. And so that is a known dose where you get efficacy. And we've shown in our device that we're able to get efficacy with a considerable uh, smaller dose of cells. And the interesting thing about islets is if you overdose islets, then what ends up happening is they just turn off. So they have the ability to turn on and off as needed. So it isn't like a drug where you over, where you can overdose the patient with islets. If you put too many in, then those cells will actually turn off and then as they're needed, they'll turn back on again. Um, if you put too few in, then your efficacy will be lower. So that's something that we are looking at, um, especially in our clinical trial that is up and coming, is that we're doing a dose response study so that we can look at several doses of islets and look at the effect of uh, those islets on the degree of efficacy. And, and once in the pouch, do these cells regenerate? Do you have to redose the patient and give a new supply every so often? How, how does that work? So from that perspective, we're working on three different kinds of products for, for diabetes. The first one that we're focusing on is working with human donor islets, and that is what the clinical trials have been about so far. And uh, those when you get those islets and you put them into our device, uh, because we believe we're putting them into an ideal tissue environment, uh, we, we believe that those islets are going to vascularize, which we've already shown, and that they're going to last for a long time. Um, in that particular approach, if um, over after years and years, and we're still going to be looking at how long the pouch will last with cells, we can actually remove the pouch, put new pouches in, and then replace uh, the cells and put new cells on if necessary. Um, so islets themselves don't tend to regenerate from that perspective. Um, the other uh, technologies we're working on, we also have a stem cell-derived uh, glucose-responsive insulin-producing technology that we're working on, and that provides an unlimited supply of cells to the patient. And so we're working on that from a preclinical perspective. And those cells, um, I believe, do have the ability to regenerate in uh, under certain circumstances. And so 
That's a bit of a different technology that we're working on that can provide that on the supply shelves for the patient. Yes, go ahead. Well, l last year you received grant funding from the JDRF uh, to help support uh, clinical trial. I'm, I'm wondering how validating is funding like that and, and has it allowed you to go out and raise other money? Yeah, so the really important thing there is that um, JDRF as an organization does very, very good due diligence and they're very highly respected in the diabetes community. And uh, toward that end, um, there was approximately six months of due diligence done on our company and on our clinical protocols that, that we produced uh, prior to us getting the grant. So um, when we got the grant, um, it was a really big uh, success for us, and we're really thrilled to be working with JDRF on, on the collaboration from that perspective. And what that has done is essentially raised uh, definitely the level of um, interest in our company by multiple large pharma companies who are now looking at our technology as probably one of the only biologically relevant technologies out there. So uh, we just came back from the JP Morgan meeting in San Francisco, and as a testament to that, we had over 45 uh, meetings down there with small and large pharma companies. So um, from the fundraising perspective right now, we have uh, enough funds to, you know, to move through and work through this trial, and additional funds will be coming in from JDRF. But um, we are always, uh, you know, talking to major pharma companies and investors from that perspective as we go forward. You're also pursuing the technology as a treatment for hemophilia. Uh, obviously, you're going to put cells in there that that secrete uh, clotting factors as opposed to insulin, but What's the opportunity for hemophilia? Are you looking at both hemophilia A and B? And what, where would you place the pouch differently than you might in a, in a diabetes patient, if at all? Yeah, so uh, with hemophilia, we're working on focusing on hemophilia A, and we are currently part of a, um, a, a consortium in Europe called the Horizon 2020 Consortium. And for that, uh, consortium, the team itself has raised, has been able to get a grant of 5.6 million euros. And the way hemophilia A works is that the patients um, are not able to produce enough of a certain factor called factor 8 in their blood. And so what happens is that they tend to bleed very, very easily. And so even when you're walking down the street, tiny blood vessels break and they, they will bleed into their joints and they get an arthritis like. Uh, situation. So for prophylactic therapy, patients are needing to take infusions of uh, recombinant um, factor eight at a cost of around $200,000 a year, and this has to occur approximately three times a week. And what companies are trying to do is extend the life of those of that factor eight. But the problem is, is when you inject the factor eight, the levels go up and then they come back down again. So you reach that therapeutic index, and then you lose the therapeutic index. What we're trying to do with the cell pouch is be able to take cells from the patients, correct them, scale them up, put them in the pouch, and then have uh, the cells be able to release factor eight at a constant rate in the body so that you are constantly staying within the appropriate therapeutic index. And what we're hoping to do is reduce or eliminate the need for taking those um, thrice-weekly injections. 
we can get uh, approximately 3 to 5% of the typical amount that is in the body in the bloodstream for factory, that can significantly reduce the side effects of the disease. So even in, with this disease, we have a very wide therapeutic margin to be able to uh, produce factor eight. So this, this product can be very, very important for these patients in, in improving the quality of their lives. This is, in essence, a, a combination device and cell therapy. How does that complicate the, the regulatory path forward, and, and what is the regulatory path forward? Right. So uh, in the USA, it's a, it is a combination product, and we go through the PMA pathway, and we file an, an IND. And the point there is that the cells are considered, you know, the main function of product itself. So, um, but we get uh, reviewed by the device side and also by the cell side of um, of the FDA. So, um, you know, combination products have been approved uh, multiple times before. Um, one can be, you know, can think about the drug eluting scent and multiple drug eluting scents have been approved. So, uh, combination products are something that is um, that the world is very used to, including the FDA. And in terms of the clinical path, is this a follow a, a traditional drug approval path? With it's a little bit, yeah, it's a little bit different. So when we do our trials, because we have the device in the body and the cells at the same time, then our first trials are typically a phase one slash two. So we're looking at phase two, but we're also interested in understanding efficacy. So for the current uh, JDRS sponsored clinical trial that we're working on. We are very, very interested in the safety side, but we're also, because of the dosing study, working on that uh, efficacy side, too. Um, then once we're able to show what the parameters are that create efficacy, then the plan would be to, you know, to go back to the FDA and expand the size of that trial. Um, the, the number of patients in these different trials will really depend on the type of indication, the clinical indication that you have. So for... Um, if you think about the uh, hypoglycemia unaware population, um, that trial would be relatively small to be able to get uh, clearance or approval. If you're thinking about uh, hemophilia A, it's an orphan status indication. So again, those trials would be small. And then if you're looking at the broad population of the 40 or 50 million patients. So From a funding point of view, what's it going to take to get this through clinical trials to the market, and, and is this something you you expect to do with a partner or on your own? Right. So, um, for the unlimited supply of cells that we're working on um, and the treatment of 40 to 50 million patients, then uh, we anticipate that we will be working on the early clinical trials, and we are talking to uh, virtually all of the pharmaceutical and medical device companies who are interested in the diabetes field. Our goal is to is to achieve uh, um, pharma partners to be able to work with us to be able to take um, this these products um, to uh, regulatory approval and then also to product distribution. So the important part about these large pharmaceutical companies is that they have uh, the distribution arms that can get our product out to the 40, 50 million patients that are out there around the world. So. I think, you know, for us working in this particular field, 
of diabetes, and it's going to be important as we're going forward to achieve um, a pharma partner to work with. And you touched on this earlier, but you know there are a, a number of both big and small companies working on similar technology. Uh, I'm wondering how you see Cernova's technology distinguishing itself. Yeah, that's a great question. We see ourselves as being very different than any of the other uh, device technologies out there that we have seen so far. And uh, and just to give you an example, most of the device, most of the companies out there are focusing on macro devices that themselves are immune protective. So what that means is that when you put the cells in the device, they're not um, able to, they're locked into that device. The device itself has very smooth surfaces. Um, there's very limited ability for uh, microvessels to get to the device, except on the outside of the device. So what what seems to be happening with those devices, and this has been borne out in the clinic now, is that um, that the devices are tending to fibrose off, similar to a splinter, because uh, the body does not heal into the device itself, and the amount of vascularization that gets to those cells is very very low. So we believe with our approach that we've taken of focusing the device on creating the ideal tissue environment with those vascularized tissue chambers, that that is essentially, we're essentially using uh, how the body works to be able to get an ideal tissue environment. And by protecting those cells on a very local basis, then we're bringing those microvessels as close as possible to the cells. So this is a very different approach. Uh, we've proven our approach works in small animals, large animals, and humans. And so uh, we think that uh, we have the right technology, and there are quite a number of other technologies out there that we believe are not going to work. And some of those are some of those uh, concepts are bearing up from that perspective. And in broad terms, how you know theoretically, how broadly applicable do you think this technology is? Could you? use this to house virtually any type of cell that secretes a needed enzyme or hormone or, or protein? Yeah, so the focus of the company is to look at uh, both major diseases such as um, you know, diabetes, um, thyroid disease, uh, hemophilia, those are, those are big diseases. And then also we're starting to look at the rare diseases where there's a protein or a hormone thing. And our device approach and our immune protection approach and cell approach is designed exactly as you said to be able to work on diseases where the cells can produce a certain protein or hormone. So anything, any disease where there's a protein or hormone missing is something that we would be looking at being able to, uh, to treat from this perspective. So our technologies are, we would call that a platform technology. That when you combine the immune protection, the device, and the cells, then it gives you multiple opportunities uh, for different diseases. Phil Talakis, CEO of Cernova. Phil, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much for the for the opportunity for the time to talk. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week. Subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, 
send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.